The book of Joel, chapter 2, I've entitled the morning's message, The Promise and the Purpose. So we're in Joel 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also on my maidservants and on my men servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of that great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, There shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Uh, One of the points um, that we're trying to make as we make our way through the Old Testament all the way through is uh, twofold. Um, One is the importance of seeing prophecy being fulfilled met a gentleman this week where we got into a conversation about the Lord. He said he went to Bible studies, and the book that they were currently studying was to determine what parts of the Bible are um, authentic and what parts aren't. And I thought, well, if this is an open door, I don't know what is. (laughs) I says, well, um, it's... it's, um, really not that difficult if you're willing to take the time, but it can be proved that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, all of it. And you can prove it uh, many different ways, but the primary way is through prophecy. So here we have another example where we're connecting the old to the new. And... um, I want to just give two examples. We could give you so many, but to sort of just lay the foundation for our Bible study this morning. Um, we have a lot of cross-references, so we'll, we'll be flipping pages. Turn over to uh, Isaiah chapter 61. I'm just going to give two examples of a double, a double prophecy. If you've been here for a while, this will be well-covered territory for you. Isaiah 61, of course... Jesus, after he was in the wilderness for 40 days, after being filled with the Spirit at his baptism, ended up in his hometown of Nazareth. He went in, and they handed him the scroll, which happened to be Isaiah 61, and he began to read these words in his hometown. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, and that's where he starts. He did not finish the sentence. He rolled the scroll back up, handed it back to the guy, and he says, today, in your hearing, this is fulfilled. And Isaiah 61, uh, to 1 and 2a, 
is signed, sealed, and delivered. It happened uh, in his hometown of Nazareth. But he stopped at a comma. And my point is that he did not read in the day of vengeance of our God, which is a reference to the great tribulation period, which we also find um, is Joel's prophecy. Joel's prophecy this morning is twofold. It Part of it has already been fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but the other portion of what we read this morning has not yet been fulfilled. Let me give you one more example. Turn to the book of Zechariah. Now Zechariah is right near the end, the last second to the last book. This would have been fulfilled on Palm Sunday. So Zechariah 9, verse 9 is a prophecy. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, you know, it had to be a wild thing to be walking and talking with Jesus every day. Because when he got to Jerusalem, he says, now I want a couple of you guys to go into this next town here. And when you get there, you're going to see this little donkey. And I want you to bring him over. And oh, by the way, if the owner says anything to you, just says the Lord has need of him. So they go, and sure enough, right where the Lord said, here's this little donkey. And the owner looks at him and says, what do you guys think you're doing? And they said, well, the Lord has need of him. <laughs> End of discussion. And they bring the donkey, and this prophecy is fulfilled. That's verse 9. But in the very next verse, this is yet future. It does not talk about the Great Tribulation, but it talks about the millennial period where Jesus now will reign. What the Jews failed to understand is that when Jesus did come, when their Messiah came, they thought, even the disciples thought, well, it's going to establish the kingdom now. I mean, even the disciples, they were jockeying for position. One wanted to be prime minister and the other one secretary of state. And he says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. They're going to bury me. And then I'm going to rise again after three days. They didn't hear a word of it. None of it. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim and the horsemen from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, not just the borders of Israel, and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. This is a millennial prophecy. What's your point, Dwight? We could go to many, but for the sake of time this morning, we're laying a foundation for the rest of the Bible study. It is the rule. It's really the, the rule rather than the exception of the rule that when we study and we see these prophecies, there's gaps of time. And sometimes it's thousands of years. Sometimes it's in the middle of a sentence after a comma. So we shouldn't think it's strange when we go to Joel, back to, go, go to Joel chapter 2, and when we read here in Joel's prophecy, he's dealing with uh, a double prophecy, and again, this, we shouldn't look at this as, uh, as strange because it is very common throughout all of the Old Testament. Here in Joel's prophecy, 
Uh, he is dealing with a plague of locusts that would destroy the, wor- destroy the land. Now here, it's only three chapters long, but there's going to be two points that he's going to make. There really was a plague, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, a literal plague of locusts. It was judgment against them for getting away from the Lord. I'll just read one verse. What the chewing locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. These are real locusts that when they went through an area, they stripped it bare. And um, what once was lush and green is now naked and eaten by a literal plague of locusts. It was judgment. However, when we get to chapter 2, verse 2, um, we have the main theme of the book of Joel is really about the day of the Lord. Was it a local message to, to people uh, at that time? Absolutely. But it also is a double prophecy in that it is speaking about a yet future event in Revelation chapter 9 in the fifth trumpet. And let's read it. So we have literal locusts, but now we're in 2. Um, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people great and strong. Notice, the likes of whom have never been nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Verse 6, the people wither in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They march the wall like men of war. Each one marks, walks in formation. They do not push one another. Each one marches in his own column. And when they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run all the wall. They run on the wall. They climb into the windows, and they enter the windows like a thief. What we have in view here is a prophecy. And we did this study a couple weeks ago. I think you can still get it. And uh, what it is without going there is the tribulation period. We have seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and bowl judgments. The fifth trumpet judgment begins with an angel coming down from heaven. And he has a key, and he opens the bottomless pit. And out of it come these locusts. And they don't harm any green thing. And it says they're not allowed to kill anyone, but only to torment them for five months. Now, if you're a good Berean, you're taking notes this morning, and you're going to go home later and and read Revelation 9. To me, it is the wildest chapter in the entire Bible because, um, they've, like it says here, there's ne- never been anything like them before. Well, let me simply tell you where they came from. When Lucifer rebelled, Somehow, he persuaded one-third of all the angelic realm to rebel with him. And uh, they are now demons. Some of them, um, one-third of Jesus' ministry was casting demons out of people. 
I mean, the disciples were all jacked up when they went out on their first missionary journey. They said, Lord, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And the Lord said, don't get so excited. He says, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. He says, but rather be glad that your name is written in the book of life. Be happy about that. Yeah, you got authority over demons. Greater is he who is in you, right, than he who is in the world. Evidently, they, there's ranks. We read that there's powers and principalities, generals and colonels and privates, different ranks of authority. We covered this when we did Daniel chapter 10. Daniel was waiting for a prayer for three weeks because this demon called the prince of Persia was holding up a lighter weight angel from delivering the message of Daniel. Clearly, speaking of authority, that is till Michael shows up. Now, the highest rank of an angel is an archangel, and Michael is one of two angels that, that are archangels, Michael and Gabriel. And he simply, when he showed up, the angel was able to deliver the message. Now, again, there's a whole Bible study right here. Our enemy does not want you to know Bible prophecy. He doesn't want you to know the things that are coming. Why? Because it equips us. It causes us not to be fearful. Because, you know, I like to go to the end of the book every once in a while and read about heaven. And um, my name being put there. And we win. We got them outnumbered two to one. <laughs> and yet... We, we read it yesterday in men's prayer. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And some of them are incarcerated. Some of them are so fierce that they're not allowed to be on this planet right now. I'm quoting from the book of Jude right now, verse 6. And it says, And the angels which kept not their first estate which would be heaven, left their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness. And then there's us unto the judgment of that great day. I believe this scripture is Revelation 9, where they're allowed to be released to torment men for five months upon the earth. And you go, Dwight, that sure is far out there. And I couldn't agree more. And one of the reasons it's important to study the whole Bible is that Joel actually gives us more detail of what these guys look like than we do in Revelation chapter 9. But they go together. Now that brings us, with that much of a background, that's pretty much the book of Joel is primarily about that great day. But the first part of it has already been fulfilled. Let's go back to verse 28. Read it again. And it will come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. So here is what I call the promise. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Remember the title of our um, message this morning is the promise and the purpose. And now I'm going to show you the promise. Acts, 
begins with the appearance of the resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, that would be Jesus, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Guys, don't do anything. You'll mess it, you'll mess it up. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus walked after the resurrection for 40 days. And we have here a promise. And therefore, when they came together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They still weren't getting it. You know, he's alive, he's resurrected. Okay, surely now you're going to establish the kingdom. And he said to him, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. I have to stop and correct Rick Warren here. He totally takes this scripture out of context. And when we, when he talks about minimizing the importance of Bible prophecy, saying that it's more important than, uh, it's uh, less important. Bible prophecy is not that important. And Jesus even said so. And he reads this verse. Completely taking it out of context. This is not what that means. He's referring to, you guys just don't understand that the kingdom isn't coming now. Then he says, but you will receive power. The word hapai is where we get, when it comes upon you, is where we get the word, is the word dunamos. It's where we get the word dynamite from. You'll be empowered. The spirit will come upon you and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. So the promise is what? That the Lord is going to send the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. Let's go to the fulfillment of Joel 2. And let's read the first four verses of Acts chapter 2. Now when the day of Pentecost, Pente means 50, 50 days after the Passover, they were all in one place according to, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a rush and a mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were seating, and there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this was the one time that the Holy Spirit was not only seen by the tongues of fire, but it came in like a mighty rushing wind. It was seen and it was heard. And they began to speak in languages from places that they had not, from countries where they were not from. They didn't know what they were saying. But the people from that country understood the language perfectly. And uh, so verse 12 says they they were all amazed um, verse 11, the, Cretan, the, the Cretans and the Arabs, we hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexing to one another. What could this mean? But others mocked and said, ah, they're just full of new wine. Well, 
this is where Peter, now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Yesterday, man's prayer made a point that before he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he took it upon himself to appoint somebody to take Judas's place because it was a prophecy. Somebody's going to take his place. So Peter comes up with a couple of guys that you never hear about again. They rolled the dice and it fell on one of them. You never hear from them again. Well, that was before he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he begins to speak in verse 14 through 21. Let's read. And Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea, and all you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock or the third hour of the day. Notice what he says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, connecting the old to the new. It will come to pass in the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Now, that much has been fulfilled right then and there, 2,000 years ago, on Pentecost. But, verses 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will return to darkness, and the moon into blood. Notice before the coming of the great, and notable or terrible day of the Lord, and will come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a double prophecy. Part of it has been fulfilled at Pentecost, and part of it is going to happen and be fulfilled during the Great Tribulation period. The last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. So let's turn there. If you're from Italy, it's Malachi. You can pronounce it any way you want to. The last words of the Old Testament. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet. This is a reference to both John the Baptist and Elijah. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the order here is reversed. When the tribulation begins, the Bible says their ministry is for 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. When the church is raptured, God always leaves a witness. So what do we read about these two guys in Revelation 11? They're called the two witnesses. Well, what did they do for 1,260 days? Well, what do witnessing people do? (laughs) They witness. And so for the first three and a half years, nobody can touch these guys. And if they try to, they get taken out by a a literal Elijah. But then, in verse 6, it's reversed, and it says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the father, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now Jesus taught on this. They wanted to know when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, because Moses and Elijah, all of a sudden out of nowhere, appear. And, you know, Peter, being Peter, he didn't know what to say, but that never stopped Peter before. 
Oh, we should build three, three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses, one for Elijah. And the father interrupts him mid-sentence, basically, shut up, Peter. <laughs> this is my beloved son. Worship him. These two guys here, when we read about Elijah um, in the book of James, what does it tell us about him? He was an average Joe, no different than you and me. But when he prayed, then it didn't rain for three and a half years. And that tells me and it tells you that you're no different. Well, some people think, well, yeah, well, he's Elijah, that's why. No, the Bible says he's no different than you or me. And yet when he prayed, it did not rain for the space of three and a half years. Now that happened in the Old Testament during Ahab and Jezebel's day. Amen? But it's also going to happen again in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Connect the dots by the same guy. And so here, um, Jesus explains as they're walking down the Mount of Transfiguration, they began to ask questions about Elijah. And Jesus says, Elijah has already come, and I tell you that he is coming. So in one sentence, he says, Elijah's already been here, but then he says, but he's coming, referring to the great tribulation. And he says, and they did to him whatever they wanted to. And then the lights went on for the disciples. Wham. And then it says that the disciples, oh, they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist. And that's... in in the Gospel of Matthew. So what was John's ministry? To turn the hearts of the children back to the father, and the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He was the greatest man, Jesus said, who ever lived. Now that's quite a statement. The greatest man who ever lived? You know what the greatest man who ever lived never did one miracle? You know what the greatest man who ever lived? You know what his job was? I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, the greatest man who ever lived. That's, that was his job. Wow. Let's turn to, as we find that this now is also fulfilled, um, one of it is during Jesus' time, and it's another example of, of uh, the great tribulation. Let's turn to John chapter 14, and let's look at Jesus' teaching uh, about Joel and the book of Malachi. I'm in John chapter 14. John chapter 14, picking it up in verse 23. John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, Now if anybody loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our, notice plural, our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my word, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So now we have an explanation. The word there for Helper is also, when you look it up uh, in, in, the, um, in the Greek, 
is comforter. The Greek word is uh, parakletes, or parakletos. It's pronounced a couple different ways. So when he comes, he's going to make his home in you. And then he says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. So Jesus is teaching on the Holy Spirit is that he's called the comforter, the paraclete. He comes alongside. He's going to live inside of you. Go to John 15, verse 26 and 27. A little bit about his nature, which is going to be important as we get a little bit farther into our study. Now, when the helper comes, or the comforter, we know as the Holy Spirit already, when he comes, I will... I shall send to you from the Father, and the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So we're learning something about the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he doesn't draw attention to himself, but his purpose is to testify and draw attention to Jesus. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So the promise is the Holy Spirit will come. And when he comes, he won't testify of himself, but he'll only testify of the Lord Jesus Christ as he is now indwelling in the believers. Now, that's the promise. Now, let's look at what's the purpose. What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming? Turn with me to John 16. So we got 14, 15, and 16 right in a, in a row. And this is important because it's not being explained today, the necessity of this first step. And let me sum it up this way. There can be no conversion. You cannot be born again. You cannot be a Christian unless you repent of your sins. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Well, What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. What What is the first thing that he does? And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Number one purpose of the Holy Spirit is to convince people who don't think they're sinners that they're not that bad after all, but you really are. And let me just give you an example. We were just in Acts 2. Let's go back to Acts 2, verse 37. Just read a couple of verses from there. Acts 2, verse 37. First of all, we just said that Peter says, these guys aren't drunk. This is just Joel being fulfilled. This this is what Joel prophesied. And then he begins to preach the gospel. And then when we get to verse um, 36, he's still preaching. 
And it says, therefore, all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's called conviction. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, what shall we do? They were cut. They were convicted. Yes, we did do that. And then Peter said, repent. And this is what people There are people who think they're going to heaven because they say, who wants to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? They raise their hand. But they haven't counted the cost. It hasn't been explained. In order to be a Christian, you have to die to yourself and pick up your cross and follow me and do a 360 from your old life and become that new creation. You have to repent. What What does that mean? It means do a 360. You can't live like you used to live. You can't call the shots anymore. You can't say what Peter said, no, Lord. (laughs) That's an oxymoron. Oh, I'll never let you get taken, Lord. Nobody, remember you called me Rocky for a reason. Uh, That's not going to happen. So he says, no, Lord. (laughs) You can't say no and Lord in the same sentence, okay? And when we say Christ is the Lord of our life, either that means that you have to acknowledge him in everything you do. Lord, is this acceptable? Is this not? And he, um, we are to bring every thought, the Bible says, into captivity. Because one of three people are talking to us. Either I'm talking to myself, or the Holy Spirit is talking to me, or the enemy of my soul is tempting me. And we are to sift it through the word of God to see which one it is. When we pray, we're going to get an answer. Yes, no, or wait. I can handle a yes, I can handle a no, I hate a wait. <laughs> no amens? <laughs> I hate to wait. Yes or no, Lord? I'm fine with either one. So here we read the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Primary. is there? There is no... Conversion without conviction. The woman at the well wanted the water that Jesus had, but he couldn't give it to her yet because she wasn't convicted of her sins. So the Lord says, all right, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, that's right. You've had five of them, and the guy you're living with right now, um, he's not your husband, so I suppose you're telling me the truth. (coughs) Dart to the heart. Nobody knew that. She was convicted. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, The law says, stoner. What do you say, Jesus? Well, what I say is, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, he got rid of them. They were convicted in their heart because they were just as guilty as that woman. And when she looked around, the Lord says, where are your accusers? And she said, none here, Lord. None here what? None here, Lord. No sinner's prayer, um, never wasn't baptized, but the Lord forgave that woman of her sins because she called him Lord in the same way that the thief on the cross never said the sinner's prayer, never went to church, never was baptized. All he said was, remember me, Lord. That was his conversion. God saw his heart. And he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And so it's not all the words along. The Lord says, don't pray long, vain, repetitious prayers. But say from your heart to me. 
But that has to bring about, and this is such an important point in the times in which we live, there has to be true repentance. And unless there's true repentance, there's really no salvation. So I think we've made the point. Let's um, go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Again, what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Well, job number one is to bring about repentance. Okay, so you've repented. Now what? Well, verse 9 is a reference. We've already read it. Jesus said, I can't. He says, it's expedient, absolutely necessary that I go to the Father because if I don't go to the Father, I can't send the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 9 here in chapter 4 is saying. Now he... Now this he ascended, what does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Well, Jesus said as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then what? Then he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now we've already read once he returns, then what's he going to do? He's going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit has come, and in verse 11, as Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he says, for he himself, that's the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. I believe a pastor has to be a teacher. They should go together. Why? What's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Giving these gifts? for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to give supernatural gifts so that when the church is taught through God's word, knowing his voice, that now the purpose is to equip you to do the work of ministry. There's some, you know, people have this idea that it's it's the... um, the, the preacher's job or the, the pastor's job to do the work of ministry. Oh, you're in ministry. No, you're in ministry. Good place for an amen. You are all in ministry. You're a Christian first and then fill in the blank afterwards. And um, it doesn't matter what your profession is. You're an ambassador for Christ. And um, so that really is the first one. Um, I got blessed yesterday because we were in First Corinthians chapter 12 at this point. And after men's prayer, I like to go through my notes and study them. From. So turn to First Corinthians chapter 12. And I looked at my bulletin, and sure enough, the verse that I, that I wanted out of First Corinthians 12 was on the front of our cover this morning. And I said, Mary, why did you pick that? Why did you pick that scripture? She says, I didn't. I picked the pencils because the kids are going back to school. <laughs> I said, no, you didn't. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 12, 13, and 14 is Paul writing to a very messed up carnal church. And so he has to teach them about the working of the Holy Spirit. 12, 13, and 14 of the chapters. We're only going to read verses 1 through 11. And he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, what's the purpose of the Holy Spirit? To get you to repent, to equip you for ministry. And then he says, now let's talk about spiritual gifts, brethren, because I don't want you to be ignorant. 
You know that you were Gentiles carried away to those dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but it's the same Spirit. In other words, there's many different kinds of gifts, but there's only one Holy Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but it's the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, it says, if you're zealous for spiritual gifts, in other words, if you want one, then you have to have this understanding that goes along with it. Whatever gift God gives you, with the exception of tongues, is to build up somebody else. Can I say that again? Well, let's just turn to it and read it. I hope I got my verse right. Yeah, um, 14, verse 12. Even so, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. It's not about you. It's about Christ in you, you exercising your gift so that it builds somebody else up. Now, if you don't have any intention of building somebody else up in Christ, um, then you really have no need for the Holy Spirit because that's the primary focus of it. That was in verse 7. Let's go back to verse 12. Now verse 8 says, For to one he's given a word of wisdom through the Spirit. I've experienced that. In other words, it's not just one gift and that's all you get. The Lord can give you a gift and then give you another, a different one. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gift of healings, the same Spirit. Another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit work all these things distributing to each one individually as he wills. The Holy Spirit is God, and he looks at you, and he is the one who determines who gets what gifts. If we turn the page, we should never take the attitude that one gift is more important than the other. It says in verse 15, Uh, Verse 14, for in fact the body is not one member but many, and uh, if the foot should say because I am not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is therefore not of the body. And if the ear would say because I'm not an ear, I'm not part of the body. Um, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? In other words, we need each other and the different gifts that you have. And I, I think we should be asking the Lord. Some of you know naturally. Some people are just naturally gifted without being born again. We have some extremely talented people in this fellowship. I mean extremely talented. And they were extremely talented before they got saved. I'm thinking of, uh, of um, painters, artists, craftsmen, some of the best craftsmen in the world come out of this fellowship in their field. 
And um, so I'm not going to name names because I don't want to embarrass them. But they had that, that particular gift even before they were born again. And you can take that gift, and let's say you were a musician. Half the worship team played in holiday inns before they got saved. You know, they were gifted in musicians. And now they're, now they're using it as the Holy Spirit works through them to worship the Lord. The point of all this is what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? Get you saved, equip you, and then give you a gift so that you exercise it actually to build somebody up. Gang, there's nothing, if you have the gift of, of I heard the guys talking in the back room, they want to go to Oshkosh this afternoon and do some street witnessing. Well, these guys have the gift of evangelism. And there's nothing on this planet that uh, gives a person more joy than leading a person to Christ, and it's genuine. And there's just nothing like it. And for those of you who have had that privilege of leading somebody to Jesus, and their life was (laughs) one minute one way, and they have this radical born-again experience, and I mean like the road to Damascus, Paul's on his way to take out Christians. What does he end up doing? Really most in the New Testament. And uh, being the greatest of the apostle, even though he says he's the least, I think he was, he was the greatest. So the Holy Spirit is God. Whenever I give a study like this, I want to expose and go after people who deny the Trinity. And so this is where we're going right now. When the Lord gave the Great Commission, he said, go into all the world. I want you to teach them all the things that I taught you. And after you've taught them, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Good place for an amen. Now, the devil, always trying to twist the scriptures or change it, has um, come up with different um, churches, different denominations that deny the Trinity. Uh, Oneness Pentecostalism. Oneness theology denies the Trinity and teaches that God is a single person who is manifested as Father in creation and as the Father of the Son in the Son for our redemption and as the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. Another way of looking at it is that God revealed himself as Father in the Old Testament as a son in Jesus Christ's ministry on earth, but now as a Holy Spirit after Jesus' ascension. This is often called modelism. In addition, oneness theology also maintains that baptism is necessary for part of salvation. That it, um, That is, in order to be saved, one must be baptized by immersion. If you are not baptized, you cannot be saved. However, not only must be baptized by immersion, but it also must be administrated with the formula in Jesus' name rather than the formula in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is mentioned in Matthew 28. Finally, this baptism must be administrated by a duly ordained minister of a church that maintains oneness theology, sometimes they're called Jesus only, United Pentecostal um, Apostolic Church. Oneness churches also teach that speaking in tongues is a necessary manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Since a person cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 9, it follows that only those 
who have spoken in tongues are really saved. Uh, There is therefore an emphasis that oneness churches, members speak in tongues to demonstrate that they are saved and have the truth. Now some of these people might be saved, and if you're told that unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved, you're going to speak in tongues. (laughs) You won't have the gift of tongues, but you'll be speaking something. Sha-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. <laughs> Let me go through the list. Christian Science, Mormons, Jehovah Witness, Church of God International, Oneness Pentecostals, Quakers, Shakers, The Way International, Unification Church, Unitarian Church, Unitarian Universalism, and the United Church of God all deny the Trinity. I had three elders oh, this was good 15, 20 years ago, um, come from the United Pentecostal Church. And um, all of a sudden, they were in my office. And um, I didn't know them. I didn't know I said, well, hi, where are you guys from? And they told me. And they just said, oh, we just thought we'd stop in and talk to our, our brother here at Calvary Chapel. And I looked at them, and I said, well, I'm not your brother. And they said, well, sure you are. I says, no, I'm not. I said, I know, I know what you guys teach. I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And because I wasn't baptized by your formula in Jesus' name, I'm not saved. You know what I said is just true, and so are you. They just looked at me, and I said, now get out of here. <laughs> and they did, because what I said to them was absolutely true. See, what the cults do, they're very, very sly, just like our enemy. They will tell you, they'll call you brother, they'll do this, they say, we agree with this, we agree with that. You've got to call them out. And so I called them out real quick. I know what they believe. And this is why we have, when we have a Bible study like this, I like to tell you who are the ones that don't believe in the Trinity. And actually are preaching another gospel, going contrary to what we're teaching here. All right, let's get back on track. The main purpose, when all is said and done, You've repented, you've been equipped, and you're being used in ministry. The main purpose of the Holy Spirit is to draw out of the world a bride for the groom, Jesus Christ. Now, John the Baptist said, I'm just a friend of the groom, but not the bride. The bride has preeminence over the greatest man who ever lived. He says, I'm just a friend of the groom. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, or ten Christians, at least five of them were real, which took their lamps and went out to meet who? Their bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps, but no oil with them. No oil, I believe, is a reference to the Holy Spirit and the necessity of being born again. There are people who call themselves Christians because they go to church who have never been born again, by the Spirit of God. If you ask if they're a Christian, they'll say, absolutely yes. Do you go to church? Sure I do. Do you know Jesus? What do you mean by that? I believe in Jesus, but Jesus said to those who will come to him someday, but Lord, Lord, we did this and we did that, we did this. He says, depart from me because I never knew you. If you're, the, the connection here is a, of the Holy Spirit is to draw a bride. Now this is getting into the romantic field. I'm glad the Song of Solomon is in the Bible. It's pretty racy stuff. 
It's meant to be between a husband and his wife. It's romantic. But the wives took oil in their vessels and in their lamps. And while the bridegroom tarried, they slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was made, Behold, the bridegroom comes, go out to meet him. Now, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to gather a bride for all eternity for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a saying here for every New Testament teaching. We have an Old Testament picture. Turn to the book of Genesis chapter 24. I love it when we're able to dig out little nuggets like this. This is one of my favorites. What we have in Genesis 24 is Abraham sending out an unnamed servant into another land to get a bride for his son Isaac. So let's read the first four verses. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And so Abraham said to his oldest servant of the house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh. This would be like making a deal and shaking hands. And I'll make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from the sons of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, well, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back? to the land from which you came. And Abraham said, Beware that you do not take my son back there. Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, of whom spoke to me and swore to me, saying to your descendants, I gave you this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow, then you will be released from this oath Only do not take my son back there. All right. The teaching in the New Testament is that Jesus, when he got to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit back with the purpose of eventually bringing a bride to wed the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called the wedding feast. There's going to be a wedding feast someday. Let me draw your attention to verse 2. We're told here that this we have a servant, but he's not named, an unnamed servant. My question is, who is this guy? What is his name? Go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Genesis 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield and your exceedingly great award. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now go back to chapter 24, and here we have a guy who's in charge of his whole household. In other words, he's going to be the heir. Who's going to be the heir if Abraham dies? Well, it's Eleazar from Damascus. 
Eliezer, when you look, type it into your blue letter, um, means God is a helper or my comforter or literally the same word in the New Testament when Jesus said, I will send you a helper and a comforter. This guy's name means comforter. Who is being sent? You have a picture of a father sending an unnamed servant. Why is he unnamed? Because remember when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not to draw attention to himself, but only to Jesus. He's representing the father. And he's bringing back a wife for Isaac, but he goes unnamed, not drawing attention to himself. But we know his name. Are you guys getting this? You see what was happening here? It's a picture. And the picture is, um, what if she doesn't want to? Now we have free will. And so they go to the land of Mesopotamia, verse 10, and um, Eliezer throws out this fleece, and he says, um, Lord, when I get there, if I can get this uh, sort of a fleece, um, and uh, she asks if she can give some water to my donkey, then I'll know that that's the one. So he pulls up to this place, and here's Rebecca. Verse 16 says, Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, and a virgin. No man had known her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. And uh, she said, Drink, my lord. Then she hastened her pitcher down to the hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished um, drinking, she hastened and emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well, and drew for the camels. Uh, how excited do you think Eliezer is at this point? <laughs> Lord, if she says, I'll feed your, your camels too, then I'll know that's the one. Well, he gets down and he, he gives her a gold ring and, and um, puts it in her nose, if I remember right. Um, looked like that one's come full circle. <laughs> She runs home, and um, you know the story that Uncle Laban comes out, and um, they realize they're related, it's family, and they said, I've come here on this journey to take Rebecca back to be bride to Isaac, Abraham's son. And uh, they got him to stay for a couple days, and they kept dragging it out, and, they, and then Eliezer finally says, Is she going to go or not? And they said, well, ask her. So now we're in verse 58. Then they called Rebekah and said to him, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit? To to reveal the gifts. And uh, believe me, Abraham came with a lot of gifts. She saw the gifts and the invitation to leave her old life and to go back with a person that she's never seen. My Bible says, though not seeing him, we love him. And we look forward to the day when we're with him face to face. Good place for an amen. So even though we don't see him, we're on this journey. And I wonder what she thought about as she's taking this camel ride back. We find um, at the end of this story... When the rapture happens, um, Jesus comes to meet us in the air. And then we go out to meet him. 
And it lines up here. She's getting close to home. And 61 says, Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camel and followed the men. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Verse 62. Now Isaac came from the way of of Beer Le Roy, for he dwelt in the south. So he is coming out. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes, and he looked, and there were the camels coming. And Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to her servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And then Isaac took her into his mother's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. What we have here is an Old Testament picture. The father is Abraham. The servant, unnamed, is the Holy Spirit, Eliezer. The bride is a church. Her name is Rebekah. And Isaac is a groom whose name is Jesus. And you have our whole Bible study this morning summed up in a picture. My time is slipping away. Go back to Joel 2, and I'll just comment on the second part of it. The main part of the study was meant to be on verse 28. But... um, I do want to read, because remember I said this is a two-fold prophecy. First 28 has been fulfilled. Now verses 30 to 32. I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and pillar of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of that grateful, terrible day of the Lord. And it will come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So these verses that I just read have not yet been fulfilled, no more than Isaiah 61 where Jesus stops at a comma and it says in that great and terrible day of the Lord. He didn't read that part because it's still yet future for you and I. So Joel 2 verse 32 as we wind things up this morning, is, are you a whosoever? The Bible says here that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Did Rebecca have a free will? Could she have said no? Absolutely. But she didn't. She said yes. So as we wrap things up this morning, my question is simple. Do you believe there's any other way that you're going to make it to heaven outside of repenting of your sins? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Receiving him into you, and now he lives inside of you. Then he begins to work in you, giving you gifts, and he's preparing you for a wedding. And if you can't honestly say in your heart that you know his voice, that I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning to receive him. Know this, the Holy Spirit is pursuing you if you're not born again. Uh, he was sent to pursue you. 
Today it says, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Be that wise virgin, having your lamps trimmed. Are you filled with his spirit? Are you feeding it? The purpose of the Holy Spirit in closing is this. Number one, to convict you of your sins. Number two, to lead you to repentance. Number three, to live inside of you. You're the temple of God. Number four, to equip you with gifts that he wants you to exercise and use. And then to prepare you to meet your groom, our Lord Jesus Christ, as we spend our eternity as the bride of Christ in the New Jerusalem. And it just doesn't get any better than that, now does it? Sounds like a commercial to me. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, the seriousness of our decisions are clearly laid out before us of the promise of the Holy Spirit. We saw that fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And now the purpose of the Holy Spirit and what he's wanting to do in each and every one of our lives. But the bottom line is, it's a love relationship, not a legalistic one. And we're like Rebecca. We can say yes, or we can say no. I pray for the one that has never repented of their sins and accepted you into their life. I pray that your Holy Spirit would soften their heart and let them know that God really does love them, that he did give his only begotten son. And that if you'll simply exercise from your heart um, your love and gratitude for what he's done for you, then his promise is just that, the promise of the Spirit of God living inside of you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.